Good morning. Turn with me in your scriptures to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. A passage most of you probably know from memory. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Lord God, I ask you to do through this word what cannot be done by mere man. I ask you to bring glory for yourself out of our hearts to turn our eyes upon you in worship and to calm our hearts, to send us out of here strong and invigorated by a new taste of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, got a phone call day before yesterday, which I returned last night from Garrett Smith sweet brother Garrett Smith. Uh, I asked him what he needed and he said, oh, I was just going to check on you to make sure you're okay. Uh, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. He said, yeah, I, I know you got this short notice uh, to get into the pulpit. And I knew you'd be working hard to put something together. And I just want to make sure you weren't anxious. <laughs> At which point I busted out laughing the same way you did because I knew something that he didn't know. I was camping out in the scripture's anti-anxiety medication. <laughs> Be anxious for nothing. Not long ago, my wife Julie and I watched a movie called Mine. I don't remember all the details. Pretty good movie. Not a fantastic movie, but a pretty good movie. It concerns a soldier in Afghanistan who loses his partner in a firefight. And then he steps on a landmine. It doesn't go off. And he has to stay on it. He hears this click when he steps on the mine. And he knows what it is. And he's got to stay on that mine because what happens if he steps off the mine? Kaboom. Kaboom. Many tiny pieces. And he doesn't, doesn't want that to blow up in his face like that. So... He stays. He stays for 52 hours on that mine. That is approximately a long time. 52 hours. And the movie takes us through the harrowing visions that this poor tortured soldier faces. As he can't move in any direction for hour after hour, and actually day after day, day and night, in heat, in cold, fending off hungry animals. Good to have an M16 when there are wolves coming after you. Sometimes even dealing with enemy machine gun fire in a situation where he can't take cover. Totally surrounded by terrifying threats, not the least of which is the one under him. And we share that terror as he waits for reinforcements to get to him, to get him off the mine, and waits, and waits, and waits. 
for reinforcements that appear never to come. He's got flashbacks to his family that he's never going to see again. He has conversations with his dead partner who appears in hallucinations and ladles guilt and fear all over him. The accusations of his tortured mind taking human form. Hours crawl by and our soldier simmers in fear, regret, despair, anger, guilt as he catalogs in this imprisoned mind the hundred horrors that conspire to put him in his grave. From time to time, a figure comes out of the desert, a strange apparition of a man that may or may not be real. He tells our soldier, you have to move on. Just move on. Accept the consequences. After all, 7% of these minds are duds. There's a 7% chance that if you just walk away, you're going to be fine. Just walk away. Just move on. Spoiler alert. The soldier finally does step off the mine. He has to. And when he steps off the mine, nothing happens. It was a dud. And that one step totally reframes everything that happened before. It turns out that all the horrible possibilities that he'd made the last two days a nightmare were nothing but phantasms. He had been imprisoned in a little tin box for nothing. But he heard the click. Few, if any of us, have had much, so much apparently legitimate cause for anxiety as this soldier in our movie, standing on his mind. But many of us have minds of our own, which in their way and on their scale paralyze us with fear, paralyze us with anxiety. In our own worlds, each of us hears that click of the landmine trigger under our feet. We go to the doctor, click. We look at our bank account, click. We see our children drift from the faith, click. We feel growing aridness in our marriages, click. We hear rumors of cutbacks and layoffs at work, click. We watch the news, click. We wonder why there's so much suffering in the world and when it will be our turn to endure it, click. We remember that we must die, click. To help us live on these things, to live on these minds, we turn in all directions. Some of us become radical control freaks. Desperately trying to make sure that life behaves itself by rushing around supervising every detail of our existence and everybody else's for that matter. Terrified by the possibility that somehow, somewhere, there is a subatomic particle that's doing something without our permission. I know this person. Do you know this person? Others of us curl up in a fetal position, completely unmanned by the slightest inconvenience. 
hag-ridden by the inevitability that something is going to go wrong and we don't know what it is. And we don't know when it's going to happen. And there's nothing we can do about it. And we don't have the mental, spiritual, financial, physical, emotional, or, or mental resources to deal with it. And we know it's coming. And we know we can't handle it. Scripture knows this whole thing really, really well. Both sides of it. For example, we have Martha. You remember Martha? I call her the matron saint of anxiety. Look, look at her story in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now it happened that they went into, that they, it happened as they went, he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him, Jesus, into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Now, I'm not going to tell you what Jesus said in reply to that. Most of you know, but I'm not going to tell you. I just want you to sit there and hear Martha's voice. There's so much to do. Why is she sitting there listening to you? I know her too. You know her? I know all three of these people. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul takes on this demon anxiety that possesses so many of us, that imprisons us in our fears, that enslaves us to drugs and alcohol and panic, that tramples on our minds and hearts like a giant despair. And our Apostle calls us to victory over this enemy. He says, be anxious for what? Nothing. The word Paul uses here for anxious has to do not with being cautious or prudent, but be, with being troubled or afraid. You know that I normally uh, preach from the King James Version, and I didn't this morning. I use a new King James. There's a reason for that. Because on this text, uh, the King James translators use a word that in the 17th century meant what we mean by anxiety. We're guaranteed to misunderstand it because they say, be careful for nothing. And that's, exa that's exactly what I don't want to convey. I don't want to give you the idea that this injunction to avoid anxiety means don't worry about living wisely. Don't concern yourself with prudence or caution or planning. That's not what's going on here. Neither Paul nor Jesus, who says, take no thought for tomorrow, same word. Neither one of them intends to prohibit careful planning, foresight, wisdom, or prudence. That's not what he's saying you can't do. Jesus, after all, did not rebuke Martha for cooking and cleaning. The enemy here is not a well-organized, disciplined life. So we're not being told to go be hippies. The enemy here is that nagging, stomach-churning, hunted feeling. That feeling that life itself is a predator. And that the events of the day seem like the ones that are seen and the ones that are unseen, they're threats. Everything is a threat. Stalking us, waiting to strike, malevolent, cruel, indifferent, overwhelming. The feeling that we're naked and exposed before all this and there's nothing we can do about it and what's going to happen next. 
Some of these lurking predators are very real. Others are phantoms our minds create. Real or imagined, they feast on our fear. They, they leave our joys mangled and bleeding in the jungles of our thoughts. And just here, Paul gives us a rifle to take out these predators. Trusting, believing prayer. We have a weapon, more accurately, we have a minimum of three weapons against anxiety. Be anxious for nothing. First, a defensive posture. Be anxious for nothing is a command. It is in the imperative mood it says do something or don't do something. A command concerning your emotions. Paul prohibits a certain attitude. He prohibits a certain feeling. The Holy Spirit, speaking in His Word, assumes jurisdiction over your heart, over your mind, over your thought choices. He says, there is nothing in the world that has the right to terrify you. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing in the world that has the right to terrify you. You've been given a command to stand in the face of everything life can throw at you and say, is that all you got? And you've been given the resources to do this. Now, before you knew God, there was the infinite wrath of a provoked justice hanging over your head. And if anything, you weren't afraid enough of that. But now that Christ has reconciled you to God by His blood, death itself, itself has no sting. And have the little gnats of daily life any greater power than that? God commands you to look at the realities of the gospel. And to realize that for the child of God, nothing can happen that has not been vetted by infinite wisdom and love. That has not been managed by infinite benevolent power. The whole universe is at the beck and call of one who cherishes you as the darling of his heart. Be anxious for nothing. You have the ultimate friend in high places. Be anxious for nothing also takes an offensive posture. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Your arsenal in the war against anxiety. He begins with prayer. Now this word for prayer does mean petition. That is included. But that's not the primary meaning of the, of the word for prayer. Paul begins with worship, with adoration. Our assault on anxiety begins with a reflection on who God is. We fortify our joy by ascribing to God and therefore reminding ourselves the attributes of His being and of His character. We spend time in worship. What adoration is is taking the time to describe God to himself. This is the kind of being you are. Guess what? He doesn't forget. He doesn't need the reminder. The adoration, the description of God pouring out of our hearts, describing who he is to his face, that is a face-to-face -face encounter 
with this reconciled omnipotence in which we see the kind of being in whose presence we live out the whole of our lives. You see several glorious pieces of adoration of this kind in the Psalms. Psalm 18, verse 1, I will love you, O Lord. O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. You see the anxiety crumbling there. Given who this is, who in the world can threaten me? Psalm 29.2 Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. There is a reverent fear of the God of this glory. A fear which washes away every fear on earth. Psalm 68.34 Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel and His strength is in the clouds. A long, long time ago, I'm thinking it's 19 years ago, I took my daughter Hannah to see Lord of the Rings. And she was probably a little bit too young to see Lord of the Rings. And the result of this was that when all kinds of horrifying things started happening on the screen... Blood circulation was cut off to my left arm. (laughs) Because for 12-year-old Hannah, when she saw orcs and monsters and blood everywhere, well, back in those days, Daddy was this big, strong, powerful presence. And by clinging to his arm, she could manage her fear. Wouldn't be so now, but unlike God, I change. God doesn't. And you can still watch the orcs and monsters, and you can still cut off God's circulation and cling to His arm, knowing you're going to be safe. That's who you're dealing with here. So before you start putting quarters in your spiritual vending machine, take some time to consider just who it is you're addressing. Time spent in this kind of adoration fortifies prayer. It fortifies confidence. It fortifies courage. It builds our confidence that God is both able and willing to interfere in our defense. You know, I I was raised in this room. I was raised under this pulpit. So I never really had any problem with the idea that God was powerful enough to do absolutely anything I needed. And if any doubt remained from what I heard from this pulpit, all I had to do is go outside on any given night and see His handiwork in the heavens. Look up at the sky and see those stars, the very nearest of which is forever out of reach of man. All those distances, all that size, All that beauty pulled out of nothing by a word. And I've got a problem he can't handle? Please. I never had any problem believing that God was able 
But I had a pretty significant problem believing he was interested. Can I get an amen? You look up at the sky, you look around you, you look at the created order, you know he can. The question is, will he? But this kind of adoration, while reminding us all of the awesome capabilities, and I'm using that word in the original sense, not, well, that was kind of nice. I'm not using the word awesome the way teenagers use it today. I'm using it the way it was historically used, that which inspires awe. This awesome capability of our Creator also drives home the fact that not, He's not just our Creator. He's our Redeemer. This is the God who took on flesh for the specific purposes of having it mangled and torn for our salvation. I'd say He's interested. As Paul argues in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Or what, says God? I'm going to give, you my, I'm going to give, I'm going to give my own son blood. He doesn't have it. I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to give him blood, and I'm going to give him flesh. And I'm going to tear that flesh and spill that blood for your sins. And then I'm not going to need, meet your daily needs? Seriously? There's a theological term for that. Preposterous. Absolute nonsense. I enfleshed my son and tore him in half for your sins. And now that we're reconciled, I'm not going to protect you? Seriously? Paul immediately turns to a flip side when he goes to the next weapon, supplication. Supplication is an acknowledgement of our own need, of our own poverty, of our own insufficiency. It is in many ways the polar opposite of adoration. Where adoration locates all of our resources in God, His power, His faithfulness, His love, supplication abandons all hope in the self. It's a confession of our entire dependence an affirmation of entire trust, which is a different kind of adoration. It's a confession of total dependence and an act of childlike faith, resting on this foundation of adoration, which brings us face to face with the reliable, trustworthy God. Supplication places all in His hands, believing, resting, trusting, relying, Knowing Him as the shelter of our body and soul. God is incomprehensible, and I may not understand His answers or His actions, but I can rest in His promises and His character. Is there any remaining doubt? Well, if there is, Paul gives us a third weapon to demolish it. We've got adoration, worship. We've got supplication. And we've got thanksgiving. You see, adoration looks up to God in His glory and power. Supplication looks into us in our need and dependence and our insufficiency. Thanksgiving looks back to what God has already done in the lives of His people. On the one hand, the generosity of God imposes upon us a moral duty to approach Him in the spirit of gratitude. He is so 
kind to us. He is so good to us. He provides so much for us. There is a moral duty to approach Him in gratitude. There's something bad wrong with you. What makes a spoiled brat so offensive to be around? Why is it that we just instinctively hate a nasty, whiny, spoiled brat kid? Because what made him nasty and whiny and spoiled was his reaction to the kindness of another. The spoiled brat is not like the abused kid. The spoiled brat is so morally offensive because he has taken an unending stream of kindness. Now, maybe the kindness wasn't wise. But he's taken an unending stream of kindness and he has twisted himself into this whiny, spoiled, unendurable brat. Ruined, not by abuse, but by kindness. We have an instinctive understanding that when somebody's kind to you, you owe them gratitude. You owe them respect. That's a moral duty. In addition to that, just how unhappy can you be when you're giving thanks? There are limits to how miserable a grateful person can get. When the psalmist tells us it is good to give thanks to our God, he does mean you are doing a good thing. But he also means you're doing something that is good for you and brings you delight. But there's more. Giving sincere thanks stirs up this joy in the heart. And that's an important reason why God requires it. But on the other hand, thanksgiving is an apologetic. Now, how, how am I using that word? What's an apologetic? It's a defense. In giving thanks... We're dwelling on the myriad of things that God has already done. For us, Thanksgiving looks back. We remind ourselves that God's daily provisions are just that, daily. That God's care for us is normal, not extraordinary. That this immutable God, what does that word mean? This God who does not change will be now what he was from all eternity. His changelessness, his very being, is an absolute guarantee that he will answer our prayers as he has always done, wisely, lovingly, and powerfully. In thanksgiving, we bask in the habits of God. When you are immutable, you got habits. And we bask in the habits of God. But Paul here uses an idiom that might cause us a little concern, just the way he states that. He said, let your requests be made known to God. Does that bother anybody? Wait a minute. Made known to God? Seriously? That's kind of like when I'm in the grocery store and I read the ingredients on a package and I'm told what something may contain. What do you mean may contain? What do you mean make known to God? You mean he didn't already know? You mean he's surprised to find me in this state? Well, no, that's not what it means. It's a figure of speech. 
And here the meaning is, we're presenting our needs before God as an act of worship. To seek God in this way is in fact another form of adoration. It's treating Him like God. Thou art coming to a king, says John Newton. Large petitions with thee bring. It's an acknowledgement that God is such a God as can act savingly in our needs. In our offerings, we present to God a portion of what already belongs to Him. And by so doing, we worship Him as the one who provides all. In our prayers, we do the same thing the opposite way. We present our concerns as the venue within which God will glorify Himself one way or another. In thanksgiving, we look back and say, look what God did. In supplication, accompanied by thanksgiving, we come out of God's reputation among us. We look at His habits in dealing with us. And we say, here is a set of circumstances, Lord, by which you can display the beauty of your attributes to an amazed world. I can't wait to see what you're going to do here. Even petition offered in this spirit is a form of adoration and worship. What happens to our doubts and fears under these circumstances from this kind of a spiritual and prayerful pasture, uh, posture? This, this perspective here is in all things is God-centered. Who fears God fears nothing else. We approach God asking for a revelation of His glory, asking to see Him in action. And here, all God's attributes conspire together to strengthen us, which is exactly where Paul goes in the next verse. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, vital word here, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Heavy promise here. In prayer, we're spending time in the conscious and contemplated presence of a being who is, who is entirely at peace. You ever thought of it? God is entirely at peace. He is complete within himself, absolutely self-contained. He is even his own companions. He has no needs. He is the unaided source of all existence. Here, Paul promises that this absolute composure and rest will be ours. This peace is appealing to the incomprehensibility of God, and it transcends every attempt to comprehend it. God is incomprehensible. You can't understand Him. I, I, you know, I've come to take a great deal of comfort in incomprehensibility. That's no longer a wall to me. And I'll tell you, who has taught me so much about incomprehensibility? Petey and Norman. Some of you don't know who Petey and Norman are. They're my dogs. And every single day, I spend a great deal of time with Petey and Norman. And they observe my life. And I look into their eyes as they look up at me. I use my computer. I cook breakfast. 
I drink a cup of coffee. I make a cup of coffee, which is even more miraculous. And I realize that those two wonderful dogs do not at any point have even the vaguest idea of what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, what my life is all about. I am to them absolutely incomprehensible. But the intelligence gap between me and those dogs, I'm what, twice, perhaps three times as smart as they are? And that gap is enough to place my entire world and frame of reference, in principle, completely out of their reach. They can never, ever, ever understand that, understand what my life is about and who I really am. Raise that to the power of infinity. And look at the distance in wisdom and intelligence between God and me. Because my dog's got a whole lot better chance of flying a space shuttle than I have of understanding the purposes and providence of God. Incomprehensibility teaches me that trust is a good idea. Incomprehensibility rests in the vast distance in intelligence and wisdom between God and me. And when I see just how ridiculously far above me his mind is, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. He knows what he's doing. The sum total of all human wisdom is fine dust on the scales compared to that. So, in our prayers, we present our concerns as the venue where this incomprehensibly wise God is going to explode in the display of his attributes. So, we've got this being who's the unaided source of all existence, We've got this promise that this absolute composure is going to be ours. We've got a peace that comes from the being of God into us. A peace that may very well be at odds with the evidence. What do I mean by that? We're promised a peace through this process that will cause people to look at us. And if we're not panicking, we're crazy. Have you lost your mind? Why aren't you panicked? I remember another movie. I can't remember the name of the movie. It's a spy movie. This Russian guy has been caught, and he's being accused of espionage, and he's going to be put to death if he's proved to be a spy. And the CIA officer who is entrusted with the care of this guy as he's going through the process is repeatedly amazed by the fact that this guy doesn't panic and doesn't get all up in arms and doesn't get emotional. And he says, why aren't you terrified? And the would-be spy returns with the statement, would it help? Does your panic do you any good? Paul's point is that your your panic is completely irrational. My point is, in addition to being completely irrational, does it help? Would it make any good difference? 
Those who have traveled the farthest on this road to God's peace, these are the ones who can enjoy that peace when the whole world is collapsing around them. And to the eyes of sight, to the eyes of flesh, there is no reason for anything but panic and despair. These are the people who are completely at rest when the world of sight is a nightmare. I've known a few of these. Back at Bellhaven in the 80s, it was my honor to have a friend by the name of James Arthur Hall. James Arthur had hydrocephalus, which means that he lived with a migraine all the time. Now, I have migraines every once in a while, and when I get one, I go into my room, I crawl into my bed, I put pillows over my head, and I beg the Almighty for a swift and merciful death. James Arthur felt like that all the time. But everywhere you went, it didn't matter. James Arthur was always smiling. He was always joyful. He was always encouraging everybody else. He was always filled with gratitude. And I don't know how he did it, except he must have done this. A little later, in Savannah, Georgia, I met a lady named Rosie Payne, and well was she named. Rosie was exceedingly old. I'm not sure how old she was, but I think it had the carbon dater. She was old, and she had the arthritis to prove it. She'd come hobbling into the church on Sunday morning, her whole body twisted and gnarled, pain in every move. And you could always hear that bright Australian accent ringing up and down the halls as she greeted everybody, blessed everybody, rejoiced over everybody, and amazed everybody. You couldn't be sad within 50 yards of Rosie. Couldn't be done. In all her suffering, she still conveyed to everybody around her the absolute certainty that God knew what he was doing. And so for her, every grimace, every twinge, followed by a smile, was an act of worship. And now Rosie stands before God face to face, free of the pain. But I'm not sure she's any happier. But back to Paul. Interesting the language that he uses to convey this, this idea of God's peace. Nice turn of phrase. He conveys the idea of God's peace using, peace using military language. The peace shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We're not promised that there will not be any problems. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. We're guaranteed problems. There's going to be problems. Already twice in this epistle, Paul has talked about the kind of difficulties Christians are going to face. This is a four-page letter in which Paul uses the word joy and other forms of that word 16 times. He alludes to joy four times a page. His English teacher might have called that redundant. It's everywhere. But he ends the first chapter like this. 
For unto you it has been granted not only to believe in His name, but wait, no, there's more. Unto you has been granted not only to believe on His name, but to suffer for His sake. And that's presented as a privilege. That's presented as a delight. <clears throat> and then verse three, I mean, chapter 3, Paul comes back and says, These are the goals of my life. This is what I want to happen. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. Look where he's going in that phrase. I am energized by the energy that brought Jesus Christ out of the grave. I'm guessing some serious voltage was involved in that. But on top of that, what is it that Paul looks forward to? What is it that he encourages us to look forward to? Guess what? <laughs> We're going to get to suffer. And why is that suffering going to be so good for us? That suffering is good for us, not just because it builds character and discipline. Okay, that's true. And that's a really good Calvinistic way to look at it. Nice, grim, reformed approach. Okay, we're going to suffer and it's going to make us stronger. It's either Calvinistic or Nietzschean, depending on your point of view. But he's not grim about it. It's not just the exercise of the soul. God in the flesh suffered and I get to be with Him in my suffering. And while I am suffering, He is my companion and my company. And He is precious to me and I to Him. And He embraces me and He feels my pain with me. Anxiety is usually... The, the, the feeling we have when we think we're going to suffer. But Paul flips that on its head and says, suffering is a privilege because it glorifies God by revealing His character in you. It, it, it strengthens you by making you deeper and richer in His presence. But it is an opportunity, a venue for the companionship of the God who bled out for your sins. You get to delight in his presence and enjoy his companionship. And the venue where that happens is your pain. Paul is not a masochist seeking suffering and desiring to get hurt. But when the suffering comes, he faces it as an opportunity for rich companionship a trysting place of the soul with the lover of his heart. We're sent into battle. The word guard quite literally means to garrison, to leave troops in the defense of a position. Difficulties assumed, but in the scope of Pauline thought, Given such ideas as union with Christ and the intercession of the Holy Spirit, the garrison here is none other than the Holy Spirit himself. That's the soldier that's been left to guard us. The Holy Spirit himself is alive and active within us, supplying us with this peace of God. Defensively, 
what evil can penetrate that? Offensively, what evil can stand against it? And what is guarded here? Your heart, your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings, your ideas, your entire way of experiencing reality. This worshipful prayer, this exploration of the presence of God, this abiding in the attributes of our Creator, Redeemer, this is a total reframing of our entire experience, a totally new way of engaging with life so garrisoned we can look at the very worst that a fallen world can throw at us and reply, again, is that all you got? We can, like Jesus, despise the shame. We can face fire and sword and pestilence and rage and deprivation and persecution and through it all, be calm. In another place, and here I'll close, Paul describes this peace in another way. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So here's the Bible's anti-anxiety medication. Worshipful, adoring, grateful, God-centered prayer. By which means the Holy Spirit himself builds a fortress for your heart and your mind and gives you a peace that no mere human being will ever understand. When you hear the click of another of life's landmines, diffuse that mind here. Lord our God, we thank you for this peace that passes all understanding. We thank you for this fortress of the soul. We thank you for the absolute reliability of the promises you give us in your word, promises you have carved into your very character. We thank you that who you are is a guarantee that you will keep your word and that a covenant-keeping God loves us and will allow us to suffer no real harm but will bring us through absolutely anything all the way to death. In Jesus' name, amen.